everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Ashley Nellis from the Sentencing Project. Welcome. Thank you. So tell us um, briefly what you do at the Sentencing Project and how you got there. Oh, sure. So um, I am a co-director of research at the organization, and the Sentencing Project's been around since the mid-1980s. And I've been with the organization for about 15 years. I uh, lead our research um, and with my colleague, Nazgul Gadnoush, and I uh, have been working uh, as an expert in the area of life imprisonment for a number of years and also have a background in racial justice, in particular, a racial justice regarding youth in the justice system. So let's start here because uh, the sentencing project, whose work I really appreciate, um, just put out um, you know, some papers about uh, 50 years of incarceration. What, what have we learned over the last 50 years? Um, I think what we've learned is that we cannot incarcerate uh, out of crime and that we cannot uh, use incarceration as the only tool in the toolbox to address uh, crime and other social uh, issues. So our one of our fact sheets that just came out um, reminds everybody that we are unparalleled historically and internationally almost in terms of ranking uh, in incarceration rates. And we have over 5 million people who are under some kind of uh, supervision in the criminal legal system. And a lot of people respond, well, isn't that kind of just because we have unparalleled uh, crime rates in this country? How do you respond to that? I respond by saying that our crime rates uh, are a product of how uh, prevalent our guns are in the United States and how easy it is to get a handgun. And so it's not an unsolvable problem that we have higher crime rates than other industrialized nations. We have uh, much more access to handguns. Uh, we have a long history uh, with um, you know, racial suppression that other industrialized nations uh, 
who have addressed uh, these issues without prison um, don't have. And we, um, you know, we have, um, you know, this sort of uh, law and order mentality in the United States that is not conducive to having an effective criminal legal system. And one of the stunning facts that I just pulled up is one in seven people in U.S. prisons is serving some sort of a life sentence, either LWOP or life with parole or some kind of virtual life. Uh, 200,000 people, I think that's from a few years ago, but I'm sure the number hasn't changed that much. Yeah, so um, I'm sure it hasn't either. That's from 2020. And uh, at that point, it was nearly 204,000. So even if there was some improvement, it's very unlikely that 4,000 people have left, but it's possible. In any event, it's one in seven, uh, which is about 15% of the U.S. prison population. And what uh, to me is so remarkable about that is that life imprisonment um, is a relatively um, you know, newly used tool, even though we've always had the ability to give life imprisonment, the meaning of it has really changed during mass incarceration to mean, you know, life means life. Uh, whereas in the in earlier uh, years and decades, um, and since the beginning of the U.S. system, it really was more of an incentive to turn your behavior around. And most people were able to get out uh, within 10 to 12 years and live a crime-free life. And then another figure that just jumps out is 30% of lifers are 55 years old or more. And, you know, why is that number so important? Because I think this is like the key to really understanding the problem with mass incarceration. Right. It's a, you know, it's, we have a graying of the American prison population uh, to be sure. And a third of the lifers uh, are going to, um, are already elderly um, and are going to die in prison because of the length of their sentence. Um, it's important to keep in mind that there are countries that are, um, that exclude elderly people uh, from imprisonment because it, it is considered to be so inhumane. Um, there are uh, exorbitant costs associated with imprisoning people as they age toward uh, their geriatric years. And um, all of that is wasted expense because people who are older are extremely unlikely to uh, commit crime. So it's really an extremely punitive um, and a retributive um, uh, response to crime, um, whereas one that would allow some compassion and reasonability would, you know, lower our prison population so that they were more manageable and also keep uh, the public safe. Um, and I would be remiss not to point this out because it really caught my attention. Um, out here in California, we had two mass shootings both of which were perpetrated by uh, people in their late 60s, early 70s, which is unheard of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, those 
two crime. First of all, to have two crimes back to back like that that are seemingly unrelated, uh, that are uh, you know identified as mass shootings, is uh, very unusual in and of itself. And then to have it um, them both be committed by people who are sixty and older. Um, is also unusual because uh, shootings are typically perpetrated by people who are younger. And then that they were Asian American as well. Um, you know, all of those <clears throat> are anomalies to the usual pattern of uh, violent crime in America. And so uh, I think it's important for, and I think I've, I think the media has done a good job here of really covering how much these crimes were an anomaly um, rather than suggesting, uh, you know, that there's some sort of new kind of, um, you know, crime wave coming uh, by the elderly or by Asian Americans or by Californians. You know, this is just a very, um, you know, sort of unusual turn of events. And mass incarceration wouldn't have prevented either of these. Right. Um, right. It's so the the and and it doesn't you know, it doesn't prevent a lot of shootings <laughs> because um, it doesn't uh, it doesn't address the root issue of why people engage in violent crime to begin with. And so it really it's a response, um, but it doesn't end. It doesn't prevent. Um, and what we really want to do, I think, as Americans, is we want to prevent killings, not just make sure that uh, the people that commit the crimes, um, you know, go away for life, uh, but that we really truly turn lives around so that they don't engage in crimes to begin with. And then one more kind of dive into the, the data. I mean, one in five Black men in prison are serving a life sentence. Um, Two thirds of those serving life sentences are people of color. I, you know, you can't talk about the criminal legal system without talking about race. Yeah, it's really true. And, you know, racial disparities are um, very evident from the point of one's first encounter with the police or lack thereof, and all the way through to, um, you know, who gets the harshest sentences for similar crimes. So we see that, um, you know, in any any way that you look at the criminal justice system, you're going to see racial disparity. And I think it's, you know, on people's minds lately because of the latest, um, uh, you know, police killing. And uh, but it's on people's minds who work in this field all the time, because if you go to any uh, prison or jail, you are um, going to see a disproportionate share of Black people. Um, and, you know, I think that um, to some people, you know, you really just need to see it to really understand um, the cruelty of it that is, um, you know, placed on Black and Brown Americans. So, you know, those are the underlying facts. Um, I guess the question is, what are we going to do about it? Um, and and specifically, you know, what does the sentencing project hope to do about it? Yeah, um, we hope to, you know, do a lot of things about it. And we're, we work, you know, actively, um, you know, to intervene and to uh, redirect uh, legislators, um, 
um, into, you know, new ideas. Um, and so for one thing, we are trying to scale back long-term and life sentences uh, uh, drastically to, um, you know, limit the use of them, to shorten uh, sentences. Um, and so we, we kind of, we look at this entire um, exercise or project as what we call a second look. Um, so looking at people somewhere down the line, five years, 10 years down the line, to see is this the same person that was um, when that who it was when they first arrived at prison? We know um, just through adolescent development that if it's a young person, they're they're by definition not the same person, um, and so it's a real disservice to do to uh, put somebody who's in their early twenties or late teens into prison and give them life or life without parole and not take a look at who they are in 10 years because um, developmentally they are going to be different uh, because of um, just what we know about brain chemistry and brain development. Um, so we also uh, are very interested in, in um, you know, taking a look at all of the um, ways in which somebody can get a life sentence. So. Many people are serving life for first degree murder or second degree murder, but some people are not. And, um, you know, some people, even if they are there for a murder, were not the primary perpetrator of that murder. They were like a felony murder situation where they were uh, participating in an underlying felony, but not uh, at all involved or even aware um, about a homicide that that happened as a result in that felony. So uh, those kinds of laws that give people life sentences as if they were the primary perpetrator, to our mind, are unfair and they're disproportionate. They violate the very um, you know, basis of our criminal legal system, which is to be proportional to the crime. Um, and um, we also are trying to um, you know, make inroads at ending racial disparity um, by uh, defelonizing some felonies down to misdemeanors, those, those kinds of crimes that get somebody first involved in the criminal legal system. And that gives them a record, which makes them more likely to be um, given a harsher penalty for a subsequent crime. Um, we see as unfair uh, because uh, white people don't have that initial record by and large. Um, and so they don't have that um, even though even though they may have done a similar behavior. Um, so we look at uh, things like that. We're also involved in the federal level at trying to get uh, President Biden to um, and the BOP to uh, lower the prison population, the federal prison population, which continues to rise, um, even though the president promised uh, that he would continue that he would lower it. It's risen under his leadership. Um, and we work on a, a variety of youth justice issues, trying to end um, the transfer of juveniles into the adult system and expand the use of alternatives to detention for young people. So I want to break a few of these things down a little bit. Um, so I know that um, under the founder of uh, the sentencing project, Mark Maurer, um, there's been this kind of push for a 20-year sentencing limit. Is that something that, that's reasonable and could be safely implemented? 
In our mind, yes. Um, and we, uh, you know, we have been developing a number of strategies that could be used um, to do, um, to bring sentences back to 20 years. But essentially what we envision is that um, if we are to cap at the top at 20 years, all the sentences beneath um, will naturally uh, need to be reevaluated so that they're more made more proportional so that, you know, a robbery um, uh, doesn't end up with a seven-year sentence or a 10-year sentence, but ends up as it is in other countries with something more like a two to three-year sentence. And that the time spent uh, in incarceration for the person who needs incarceration would be worthwhile not uh, simply a warehousing um, situation so that, you know, as in Germany and some other, um, you know, more advanced uh, countries in this regard, uh, the time in prison is spent uh, preparing the person for release. Uh, that entire time is, is with an eye toward the day they're leaving. Whereas in the U.S., you know, there's a scramble to get into programming all the time. There's long wait lists that, um, you know, and there's programs that are closed off to people, except when they're about to leave, and then they can do programs. Um, and that isn't the right way to go about it at all. Um, so we need to, you know, if we ease up the number of people in prison and the pressure on simply putting people in prison and redirect our attention to creating effective programs and interventions for people while they are incarcerated, um, you know, I, we think that the entire system could then be recalibrated in a more reasonable um, and effective way. And then that's really a big problem because, you know, you look at 60 to 70 percent recidivism rates and then you look at our policies and you're like, of course we have high recidivism rates because we don't uh, give them job skills. We don't give them education enough in prison. We don't have uh, sufficient mental health uh, programming and counseling and, and help. And then we put all these limits on people, right? You know, they can't get jobs and uh, uh, they, they're limited in public housing. And I mean, if we're going to make it impossible for somebody to succeed after being released, we couldn't design this system better probably than we already have. Right. Yeah, we it's a setup, it's set up to fail. Um, and you know, that is um, you know, truly unfortunate. And you can see how people would consider our current incarceration system to be um, you know, an extension of slavery, because it does seem uh, from the way we treat people as they are incarcerated, like we don't want them to succeed. We only want them to come back. Um, and when people do succeed, and there and many do, uh, particularly the you know the people who have been there a while, um, after they sort of overcome all of the obstacles of imprisonment and and sort of adjust to their lot in life. Um, they, um, you know, they, the people who do succeed often do so in spite of the prison, not because of it. Yeah, and I've been reading about how other countries handle uh, their prison populations. And I mean, some of it's really stunning. And I, I forget which book I was, uh, I was reading, but uh, somebody was visiting a prison 
um, may have been in Germany, may have been in Sweden, but but the reaction was, hey, um, have you guys ever had a problem where, where somebody takes all these uh, uh, cooking supplies and uses it against the guards? And they're like, <laughs> no, why would that happen? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and here we, here we have everything so locked up and locked yeah. down that every little implement becomes dangerous. Sure. Right. Yeah. No, um, it's it's uh, really, really eye opening to see uh, the freedoms um, and the humanity uh, that is retained uh, for people who are incarcerated in other countries. Uh, they wear, you know, street clothes, um, they have apartments, um, you know, the focus is not on um, containment as much as it is betterment um, and really addressing where things went wrong um, in their thinking. And in, yes, in the U.S., you know, there's no, you don't use uh, real cutlery, uh, you don't use real plates, you don't use real anything. And so, um, when these uh, when these people come out, um, if they've been in there a long time, there's quite a bit of trauma that they have to overcome. I've known several uh, lifers who've come out and they have and they eat off of paper plates for a good year because they just the adjustment is so challenging. Uh, they have trouble sleeping. You know, there's just constant um, sort of PTSD symptoms. Uh, from being incarcerated um, that are that's a whole nother thing that they need to overcome. And are other countries just different than us or are we just doing this wrong? I think we're just doing this wrong, uh, to be honest. Um, I think, you know, we our policies and our uh, our crime policies are very fear based. We're afraid and they're certainly very race based and those overlap considerably. Um, but the but uh, to just take the fear ones, you know, we are afraid that um, if we treat um, incarcerated people like human beings, they're going to take advantage of it and, you know, kill us all. And that's just not it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, you know, uh, it is an extremely um, big hardship for somebody to go to jail or prison, just like it would be if you were you or I went to jail or prison, perhaps you did go to jail or prison, I have no idea, but I haven't. And the, um, you know, the, the, the amount to which that would interfere with my life is really substantial. And I think there's this, um, you know, there's just this presumption that when people go to jail or prison, there it, it makes no impact on their life uh, that they had before. And that when they come out, there's nothing, there's just, you know, there, there's no value to having them out. There's no value to having, to supporting people when they come out. Um, so. so I can, I can see people kind of pushing back on this idea, arguing, well, what do you do about the truly dangerous people? Sure. There are truly dangerous people, for sure. Um, there are certain people that are probably not going to get better because of some mental health issue, psychological break or something like that. And um, I I think, you know, when, when you just let's say, look at the long termers and, um, you know, there being um, 200,000 of them, it's difficult for me to think that there's 200,000 of these individuals, considering the fact that I've known several. So there's there the numbers are just much smaller than what we've 
allowed them to be. Um, and we have laws and policies in place that bring people into the system um, that haven't been, uh, that are not the danger that, that um, you know, we think they are. But our laws and policies are written in such a, with such broad uh, strokes that, you know, it's sort of up to the prosecutor generally how he or she wants to charge. Um, and so, you know, this is a perfect example is a habitual offender statute, which is really up to prosecutors whether they want to use that. And, um, you know, there's quite a bit of evidence that shows that they're much more likely to use habitual offender statute on a Black person than a white person. And so the punishment gets more severe. So is there a way to um, effectively weed out the people that are actually dangerous and then be able to figure out a better way to handle the people that aren't? Yeah, I mean, I think there is. I don't think I'm an expert on uh, personalities. And, um, you know, I know there are uh, risk assessments that are that have their own set of issues. Um, you know, I also know that when a person is living in prison, uh, there are uh, correctional officers and guards and, and fellow uh, prisoners who know that individual very well and um, could also, you know, weigh in on uh, the future dangerousness. But unfortunately, what happens is that um, a lot, if a person makes it to parole, for instance, a parole board, for instance, um, or some sort of review, that crime of conviction always is is what carries the day. And that um, can be a real, you know, that's a real problem because you then you'd get no credit for how your life may have changed for the better um, since that crime of conviction, which is what uh, prison should really be about. So it's like none of that time counts. I know uh, we're almost out of time here, but uh, I was wondering if there were any upcoming projects or things that you're working on that you'd like to share with us. Well, uh, the Sensing Project is launched has launched now officially a campaign um, around the 50th anniversary, a grim anniversary as it is of uh, mass incarceration. So imprisonment uh, numbers started to rise um, in the early 1970s, uh, starting in 1973, and reached their peak um, uh, unabated um, all those years, a 700% increase between that year and 2009, um, which is the period of years that we really refer to as the prison buildup. And then since that time um, until this year, and who, who knows what next year will bring, but um, uh, there's been a small decline uh, in the range of 2% a year. So so uh, my colleague, Nazgul Ganoush in our office, she uh, writes a terrific piece every year about um, how long it will take in order for us to get back to 1972 levels if we proceed at this rate. And if we proceed at this rate, it will take 75 years. So, um, you know, we're trying to, um, you know, really educate the public on the urgency of the issue and try to get, um, you know, people involved and activated in their own jurisdictions to see how uh, their particular state or county or prosecutor or whomever elected official is contributing to mass incarceration or is uh, working toward ending it. All right. Well, we'll stop there. Thank you so much. Uh, sure. I really love this topic. Uh, oh, good. 
Um, Ashley Nellis uh, from the Sentencing Project. And oh, uh, let me just ask you, uh, if people want to learn more about the Sentencing Project, where can they go? Oh, uh, our website is a great place. We're also on all the platforms, um, but our website is sentencingproject.org. Great. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.